you know, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I was like, come on, it's got to be a setup. As we all learned, that was not how that went down. So the more I thought about it, I blame the slap on Suge Knight. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. This episode is all about the Academy Awards, the Oscars, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, and everything that goes into it. If you enjoyed the Grammys episode that we did recently, the business behind the Grammys and how the Recording Academy works, then this is like a sister episode to that. And this is a personal one, too, because this is an award show that always meant something to me growing up, thinking about iconic moments like Denzel, Washington, and Halle Berry winning their Oscars and making history on their nights together, or Jamie Foxx a couple years later winning his Best Actor Award for Ray. And it's now crazy to think that it's almost been 100 years. The first show back in 1929, this idea to even start the Academy came from Louis B. Mayer. He was the head of MGM Studios at the time. And this brainchild was his goal to create an organizing body. There was no unions at the time in Hollywood. This is what he wanted to create. And this was a private dinner, 250 people. It was a 15 minute ceremony. And there was no suspense at that event. The awards were already announced and given to the press months before the show. And it was only silent films in that first award show. There were no talkies, as they called them, at the time. And a lot of that legacy has stayed true with the Oscars to this day. When you think about some of the prestige and exclusivity, often to a fault of what's included and not included, a lot of that is carried through. It wasn't until 1942 that they started announcing the results on the live broadcast to a sealed envelope, where we have that memorable line, and the Oscar goes to. That's when this award show became a lot closer to the product that we now see today. But even then, we've continued to see evolutions. We've continued to see changes. And we've continued to see plenty, and I mean plenty, of controversies and criticisms. But despite all of that criticism, despite all those controversies, there is still a ton of money that is put into these Oscars. The latest numbers that I've seen, and this is from a study that Wallet Hub had done, Hollywood spends over $100 million annually to lobby four award shows each year. And a quarter of that can come from a single company. You look at a company like Netflix or Apple, they spend tens of millions of dollars just to try to win Best Picture. You look at the math for a film like Coda that had won Best Picture a couple of years ago, Apple likely spent more money on the campaign for Coda than it actually did to get the rights for that film. That's how important these things are. And when we think about some of the statements, especially some of these tech CEOs have made, whether it's Jeff Bezos, who said, for every Golden Globe that we win, we sell another pair of shoes. These award shows are huge, not just for these companies and their standing within Hollywood, but how they use content, music, movies, and TV shows to help push their businesses forward. But when it comes to Oscars campaigning, the big tech companies were following a trend. This was a precedent that had been set decades before they got into the game, and things really went to another level in the 80s and 90s with Miramax and the disgraced film producer Harvey Weinstein. If you look back at movies like 1989's My Left Foot or 1993's The Piano, it was Miramax and the tactics that they used to elevate their own films and tear down others as well. 
Harvey really went to another level in 1998 when Shakespeare in Love beat Saving Private Ryan for Best Picture. He would reach out to Academy voters and spread lies about how inaccurate, quote-unquote, Saving Private Ryan was. He would go to Arizona and set up private screenings specifically for some of the few voters there. Every vote counted. This was some political campaign chicanery that was in the works here, and that really did set the precedent for where things are today. Speaking of the money behind the Academy Awards, it's also intriguing to look into the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences itself and how it generates revenue. In the fiscal year ending June 30th, 2023, it brought in around $230 million in total revenue and gifts. Almost $150 million of that was directly from the Oscars broadcast, which is paid by ABC, and it also includes some related activities. But $87 million of that was donations, and $18 million of that was museum revenue from the new Oscars and Academy Award Museum that they have. In comparison, the Recording Academy's annual revenue is right around $89, $90 million. So there's a pretty big difference there, especially when you're comparing the two. There's so much more to dive into on this topic and more. And I'm joined by a friend of the pod, Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, who has an even more personal relationship with the Academy Awards. So let's dive in. All right. I'm joined by my guy, Zach O'Malley-Greenberg. Welcome back to the pod. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan, as always. I think with this one specifically... You have unique insight to this because you were in an Academy Award nominated movie as an actor. That's right. So way back uh, when I was five years old, I was in a film called Lorenzo's Oil. My parents in the film were Nick Nolte, Susan Sarandon. I played a kid with a rare illness. His parents, it's based on a true story, were diplomats and they essentially quit their jobs and became medical researchers and were able to figure out a basically a, a way to stop the disease from getting worse and then eventually a, a, a way to, um, you know, to, to really stave it off. So yeah, Susan Sarandon was nominated uh, for, for her work. I uh, was invited to the ceremony, but my parents or my school, I don't remember which, wouldn't let me go. And I don't know if I'll ever get the, the full answer, but um, I think my parents kind of blamed it on the school. I don't know, man. If it were Riley and she were in uh, an Academy Award-nominated movie, I would say, uh, let's let's go to the Oscars <laughs> and skip a day of school. So um, Susan Sarandon did not win that year, but maybe that would have made me um, feel like I was missing out even more. You know, it, it made the Oscars feel more accessible to me than they really are. And, and I think we're going to get into this today, but... The whole Oscars brand is um, exclusivity, right? It's it is like the primo award ceremony. The Academy has created this image of rarefied air, right? This this sort of uh, the luxury wrap of of Hollywood. Long way of saying, like from the very beginning, the Oscars theme uh, felt strangely accessible to me, and you know, uh, even though that they're the most inaccessible of all the awards. It was the only one that I got invited to. So yeah, that, that's kind of a, a fun lens through which to view it um, here with you right now. The Grammys in comparison almost feels like a suburban shopping mall where there's something for everyone. If there isn't something for you, don't worry, they'll create a category for you. Should there be something for you in the big stores that already exist? That's a whole other conversation we can have, but that's kind of how the Grammys operates versus the Oscars tried to go a bit more of okay, this is going to be the place where you have your Hermes store, you have your Louis Vuitton store, you have these higher end places. And even though that isn't necessarily how things always come through, that 
is a bit of how they've tried to position themselves over the years. And part of that elevation, that aspiration probably speaks a bit to the ratings difference. And we talked about this in the Grammys episode, but if we're comparing the two of these broadcasts, the Grammys and the Oscars specifically, the Grammys is a much more entertaining product. You have the biggest stars in the world either A, sitting in tables right next to each other when you're talking about star power, and many of them are performing on that stage. And the Oscars, it's very different because, especially now, yes, you have A-list celebrities, but those A-list celebrities aren't more famous than Taylor Swift and Beyonce, who are literally sitting tables from each other at the Oscars. The people that are singing best original song, some of those are people that would have otherwise performed at the Grammys. And if they're going to put on a more elaborate show for one or the other, they're probably going to do it for the Grammys. But still, the Oscars is the champion. And, you know, it's kind of funny, man. I wonder if you were to go back and, and really kind of pull people, you know, earlier in the, in the middle of the 20th century, like whoever the, the biggest film star of the day was, whoever the biggest musician. I think film had something of a head start on music music was seen as like a bit of a shady business you know you had like radio and payola and all this this kind of stuff um you know there are always these mob ties with with music that you didn't necessarily have you know with sort of the the film world film has always had a leg up on music in terms of prestige and so there is something now we say oh well you see beyonce and jay-z and taylor swift like you know a couple tables from each other i don't know that that there were that many musical acts that were as big as the biggest movie stars were when these things first started Um, and i think that music has really caught up it's something that's shifted over time it makes me think about a couple years ago there was that hbo series the last great movie stars and i forget who it was it was either elizabeth taylor or paul newman or someone like that but at the time whenever they were saying that those were the biggest stars using stars in the most general sense in the world and we're now in a very different place in 2024 so i think that's a great point there and the ratings do speak to that looking at the ratings specifically for the oscars in 2023 that was last year's show they had 18.7 million but most of the 80s and 90s it was hovering around 40 million or so 2014, so 10 years ago now, they had 43.6 million. That was really the last big year it had. But the peak year that they had was 1998. And that was the year the Titanic had won Best Picture. And they got 55.2 million people to watch the broadcast then. And it was this perfect combination of the biggest film of all time at least when it came out, even though I know it's been broken by different movies now, but if we're comparing actual tickets being sold, it still is a movie like Titanic that is still up there beyond the Avengers end games and avatars and movies like that. But it's still impressive to see, but the Grammys just hadn't necessarily ever caught up there. There's only two years that the Grammys had better ratings than the Oscars. That was in 1984, and that was in 2012. And two very legendary things that happened in both of those years that caused that to happen. 2012, I was there. It was uh, it was the year Whitney Houston died. And it was I think she died the night before the Grammys. And so that, of course, turned all the attention onto that ceremony. And it also speaks to the edge the Oscars have on the Grammys in terms of viewership. Like, it takes something of that magnitude to uh to to kind of you know even the playing field that 2012 show it essentially was whitney houston's funeral in a type of way if you think about it with just all the people that you would want in the room the tributes that jennifer hudson gave it's tough to be able to match that type of moment and even though the grammys has had better ratings this year and did have a jump in ratings 
there may be a bit of chicanery going on in terms of how everything re- recently has had an uptick in ratings, even with the Super Bowl. So I do expect the Oscars to have an uptick as well. But it's been interesting to just see how how these things evolve over time. But this even le- lends itself to advertising too, because I think this is where we see an even bigger jump. The Oscars on average in 2023, the average 30 second commercial spot was well over $2 million dollars for the average spot and checking the numbers for the Grammys before this, I think it was right around a million. Maybe it was a little bit more. So even though on average, let's say the Grammys gets around 80 or 75% of the viewership of the Oscars, the revenue that the Oscars is generating compared to the Grammys is still nearly double that per 30 second advertising spot. But then even when you compare it to the Super Bowl, of course, the Super Bowl is the biggest with the 2024 Super Bowl that we just had, had an average of $7 million for an advertising spot there. But that $7 million to reach an audience of over 120 million versus the Oscars, $2 million to reach a $20 million audience. So of course, the assumption is that you're reaching an audience that is a bit higher regarded and can has a higher likelihood to buy certain particular items. But still, if you look at like on a per person basis, the Oscars is still ahead of any of these other programs. The fact that an award show is even in the same order of magnitude as the biggest live sporting event in the world and just speaks to the the staying power of the Oscars, right? And the, and the fact that, yeah, is only what, like a little less than a third the price of the Super Bowl ads in order to reach, right? Like a much, much smaller group. But like you say, it's, you know, it's a different kind of advertiser. You know, maybe you're getting more like LVMH and and less Cheetos. (laughs) I don't know. I think that's exactly it, right? Because if you look at the numbers that the Oscars has normally gotten in the past couple of years, it's been in the high teens for ratings in terms of the millions of viewers that are watching. And the closest thing that you could get to that on a regular basis is Sunday Night Football on NBC every Sunday normally gets around the high teens or so. But I bet that the ad slots for the Oscars is higher than it is for Sunday Night Football because of the same clientele that we're talking about. But then again, it's all crammed into one show, not, you know, every Sunday night. So it's like the once a year kind of splurge purchases, maybe you're, you know, this is where you can reliably find this kind of consumer. But Again, it's the exclusivity. If there were multiple ceremonies that had that kind of cachet, then it just wouldn't be the same deal. And I think, too, with that, it's probably a good point to talk about the telecast itself in ABC. So ABC has been the main partner for the Oscars for several years now. The current deal that they have runs through 2028. And ABC pays annually right around $100 million to broadcast this show. It isn't cheap. But in return, ABC is expecting to get just around $150 million in terms of advertising revenue for that. And this is something that people have questioned in recent years. Okay, how is this going to change if these ratings keep on slipping, especially the way that they did in the pandemic? There were definitely some lower years there for all award shows combined, but things seem to be a bit more on the uptick. And especially when we're talking about reaching this higher audience there is still value there. I think that's probably why you're going to see the Oscars continue to be relevant, even as we question why it's relevant and say that the Grammys is a more entertaining ceremony. It's just, you know, one of the few places where you can find those consumers or or where people think you can find those consumers, you know, whether or not, regardless of how true that actually is. Talking about the, the categories too, we talked a bit about that, but this is also a show 
compared to the Grammys where there are much more awards. And this is something that has been a bit of a contention where especially when the ratings started to dip, ABC did push back a bit and they said, hey, can we have a few less award shows? We are getting a bit mindful of viewers. But this is where we saw a bit of that tension between ABC trying to cast as wide of a net as possible, but still reach this highly desired audience. But on the flip side, the Motion Picture Academy wanting to still serve its industry and them still wanting to honor sound editing, sound mixing, and some of these below board categories that may seem a bit more technical, but they still honor the people that make so much of this possible. But still, 24 awards is a lot. And it's so different compared to the Grammys, where on the Grammys, there's more performances than there are awards given out. But the Grammys way of doing it is having this telecast where they literally give out the other 70 awards during the pre-telecast. It's easy to think about, gosh, there's so many freaking Grammys, you know, there's like 100 or something every year in total. But actually, the, the amount that are on the, you know, network television broadcast that, you know, we all tune into is half the amount of the Oscars, and it's sprinkled with all these great performances. So the the Grammys, in a funny way, are, are more exclusive in terms of what gets televised, because they have this big pre-show telecast. So I do wonder if the Oscars, as a way of sort of broadening things, opening up uh, and, and creating a bigger tent. You know, what if they had a pre-telecast um, and they could add, you know, a couple dozen more categories and maybe they could even move some of the less, you know, flashy categories over into the pre-telecast, maybe not moving any categories off the main one because, you know, you don't want to uh, upset that kind of core constituency who's, you know, just loves being able to go to the main thing. And actually, I think my favorite award speeches are from the random behind the scenes categories because you get these folks up there who it's like this is their first time on camera and it's raw and unfiltered and unpolished and and it, it's more human in some ways you know you know when you get that that random person who's surprised to get the best sound editing something or other you know that that just kind of made their entire life you know and and just that unbridled joy uh, let's keep those in the oscars if we're if we're redesigning it a little bit if you think about most of the acting and the bigger categories, by the time you get to the Oscars, most of the people that are winning those award shows have already given seven, eight speeches because they probably won the SAG Awards. They probably won the Director's Guild. They probably won the Producer's Guild. They probably won the BAFTAs, Golden Globes, Cannes, all the other film festivals. There's so many precursor events that have been added and developed here. So by the time that someone like Brad Pitt wins for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yes, it's cool, but we've also heard this speech five times already in some different type of variation. Or have we? Are we really tuning in to all those other award shows? I'm not, you know, I mean, like maybe there's a clip out there somewhere that, you know, if, I, I actually see it as more as just those other shows are rehearsals, you know, and uh, they could give the same speech in every one of them that I wouldn't know because uh, I'm just turning into the Oscars. So, yeah, in a way, the whole pre-award show circuit is interesting because to your point, you're right. Outside of the Golden Globes, which still do get modest ratings, Less than the Grammys, but still probably most than any other award shows. The rest of them really don't. I think SAG just signed a deal to have its award show primarily distributed through Netflix or one of those award shows did coming up soon. So we'll see that, but still, these award shows can often be redundant and repetitive in that way. We should talk about music specifically. Obviously, it's a topic that is relevant for us given so much of what we talk about on this show. But music at the Oscars specifically is something that has shifted. And doing some research for this, looking specifically at the best original song category, 
if we go back to at least when you and I were growing up, look at the 80s and 90s, most of the songs that were winning best original songs were also monumental songs that you felt like you couldn't escape in the radio or in culture in that way in general. My Heart Will Go On from Celine Dion and the Titanic soundtrack, that was huge. It was arguably one of the biggest songs of the 90s. From the Lion King soundtrack in 1994, you had Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Two years before that, you had A Whole New World from the Aladdin soundtrack. And then in 2002, you have Lose Yourself from Eminem from 8 Mile. And Lose Yourself is the most streamed song on Spotify from the 2000s. But if you look at now, it really isn't that same type of way. You have a few moments where there may be a song like Shallow from Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper from the Star is Born movie or Let It Go, uh, Dina Menzel from Frozen. But outside of that, most of these songs still feel like smaller hits. Some of them can still be cool moments like Glory, the song with Common and John Legend, and they had that really epic performance at the Oscars, which was dope. But still, something changed there. Something changed from the movie songs when we were growing up to the movie songs now. What I think it really was is that the advent of social media elevated actors from a promotional and marketing perspective, you know, into an area that they were not in before, right? And so, you know, back in the 90s, if you're putting out your hot summer blockbuster and, uh, you know, Men in Black, Wild Wild West, you know, and you have Will Smith starring in the film and, you know, recording the single with the name of the movie in the title, you know, you have all that going for you as a movie, and and you're getting basically free product placement um, on you know mainstream radio um, all summer long. Like people are, it's going to create awareness of this film, and people are going to go out and see it. Uh, and you know, this is you didn't have social media. You know, it's just not as simple. So as as what there is now, and and I think that really began to change. The big move was, I think, um, and I remember we put out a story in Forbes about this on Dwayne the Rock Johnson, and this was like six or seven or eight years ago when I was the entertainment editor there. And he did an amazing thing, which is he's basically said, if I'm going to star in your movie, uh, I want to be paid not only, you know, whatever I'd be paid, but I want to be paid uh, another chunk out of the marketing budget because I'm going to go on Twitter and Instagram and whatever else. And I'm just going to be shilling this thing. And it's zero expense to you. And it's, you know, incredibly effective. I think when you have, you know, superstar actors like that who have that ability, you don't really need to try to get into radio to to do what's effectively the same thing. Um, and, you know, maybe that's why we haven't seen quite as many of the Will Smith and, you know, Whitney Houston with the bodyguard kind of model for, um, you know, building in some promotional uh, clout for your film. We saw Will Smith do the same thing, seeing how The Rock was getting back end points on things and getting part of the marketing budget and said, hey, I want to do that too. We'll see if Will Smith can still do that post slap, but that was part of his following there. The other thing that I think was another factor here was MTV. You and I did the deep dive episode on them a couple months back, but there was this clear moment where MTV was the main channel of pop culture and being able to reach things as well. And it's obviously much easier for a musician to be able to reach that channel than it was for an actor. So I know the MTV had the MTV Movie Awards and things like that, but it still wasn't as big as the Video Music Awards were and just how powerful that was. So being able to have 
that there as a channel lended itself well to a Whitney Houston, a Will Smith, and many of the others. And we probably saw a few examples of that carry on, but I look at a movie like American Gangster, for instance, where maybe this is a bit of the tide shifting where you have someone like Jay-Z, who really at least to my knowledge, hasn't been in a feature film in that type of way, but he was still able to be the main curator and essentially release his own album as part of that movie soundtrack. And a lot of people do consider it to be one of his better albums, but why put him in that movie when you could have Denzel and Russell Crowe as the two leads in a movie like that? Yeah, I don't know. Did you ever watch, what was it? I think Streets is Watching. It was like Dame, Dame Dash and Jay-Z. With the, there was like a... Uh, You're right. He was in Streets of Watching. Yep. And was not not so good on camera. But to his credit, I think Jay-Z realized that like acting was not his thing. Uh, he's really good at a lot of other things, you know? Um, and so he kind of went with that. And it, when you look at what he did with like The Great Gatsby, the Baz Luhrmann remake, where he was the executive producer, I think. Uh, I think of the film itself, in addition to the soundtrack and having a bunch of songs on the soundtrack. It is funny, I mean, in, in this ongoing thread of Oscars uh, and, and film more generally, having this sort of prestige that music and the Grammys haven't historically had, um, you do see way more musicians trying to get into movies than the other way around you still see this even recently with Dua Lipa was in the Argyle movie that is currently bombing at the box office but if you look at the trailers she was the one that was probably featured in that trailer and that movie had A-list actors in it Samuel L. Jackson Bryce Dallas Howard and Brian Cranston and all of these other big name folks in it and then even more recently Harry Styles he was in that Don't Worry Darling movie he was in Dunkirk he was he's been in a few other things so artists will still try to do it but then again it's been a while since we've seen Beyonce in a movie I feel like she had tried it especially in the 2000s we haven't seen as much I can't remember Taylor Swift really being in a movie so something that felt like a rite of passage in the 90s feels a bit more of a you can do this if you want to and it can help but it could also be damaging as well I'm thinking of even more recently about The weekend and The Idol and how much of a disaster that whole project was. I mean, I guess sort of the archetype of aspiration in American culture. I want to be a, grow up and be a movie star even more than I want to be, you know, a, a rock star or a rapper or a pop singer or whatever it is. I mean, those are all aspirations, but like movie star, right? I think with with people like Beyonce, um, it's not a question of ability, but as a solo practitioner, you can make a lot more money on the road. You know, if you have a, a billion dollar tour, you're taking home a lot more of that um, than you're taking home of a billion dollar movie. We could agree to disagree on whether it was a ability thing, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the beehive may come after me after saying that, but definitely. Compared to some of the other other musicians we're talking about, like you know the weekend or something i think i think beyonce's got like some decent acting chops but uh you know maybe not on the level of some others yeah. <laughs> that's fair let's take a break for this week's chart metric stat of the week for many artists their most streamed song is often different than their song with the most airplay on radio shallow the song from the star is born soundtrack by lady gaga and bradley cooper the 2019 best original song winner at the oscars is Gaga's fifth most played song on the radio over the last 180 days. Number one is Poker Face. Number two is Bad Romance. Number three, Just Dance. Number four, Paparazzi. And number five, Shallow. 
But when we move over to streaming on Spotify, it's Shallow that's on top by far with over 2.3 billion streams. Number two on the list is Always Remember Us This Way, which is also from the Star is Born soundtrack. Number three is Poker Face. Number four is Bad Romance. And number five is Just Dance. To be fair, Gaga's earlier hits were released well before Spotify ever launched in the U.S., but it's still cool to see that the power of the movie soundtrack lives on. Let's get back to the episode. And on that, since we're now criticizing some of our favorite musicians for their acting, we should talk about some of the criticisms and controversies of the Oscars for a while. And this is stuff that is, even though the Oscars has improved in certain ways, some stuff has just stayed there for a while. There is, of course, this strong focus on U.S. films, and it really wasn't until more recently when Parasite had done really well and won Best Picture at the Oscars that we had seen movies outside of the U.S. getting recognized. There were all these tropes of people that were playing disabled people or people that had some type of physical or mental limitation and that being an Oscar baity thing to do to try to win an Oscar. Playing a biopic role of someone famous felt like it would get a bit more juice than just playing an equivalently impressive but lesser known person. Not much love for comedies or comic book movies and too much love for white male stories and some of the navel gazing of telling stories about Hollywood itself. Yeah, I mean, how many movies were there, you know, over the past couple decades where it's like, I don't know, George Clooney and Brad Pitt and some combination of them on a period piece about, you know, some hard scrabble Hollywood actor or, or, or perhaps some intrigue, you know, within uh, the, the upper circles of, of the uh, Hollywood elite. Thinking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, yeah, it was like a movie about making a movie. Is that what it was called? Yeah, that George one. Clooney. And Mank, too. Mank was and, also about the making yeah. of Citizen Kane. Right. So like the meta of the like movies about making movies, you know, tend to do really well, stuff like that. Um, I mean, it was an adaptation, right? I mean, <laughs> so uh, that's not to say that they're bad movies necessarily, but just there's a lot of them, and it, it was definitely over indexing, um, over like entire other categories of experience that you know, like billions of people have, um, you know. But I think it kind of goes back to that, um, that you know, obsession that we have as a society with movies, right? Um, and and people. At some extent, maybe people want to see movies about movies because there's there's just this meta element to it to it all um, that that you know that it's almost like a, a high end reality TV um, that people want to sort of like have a window into some to something else that's different from their own lives. So maybe probably has something to do with it. And the high end reality TV also ties into some of the controversies and some of the oh shit moments that you see when watching the Oscars. And not that they happen every year, but when they do happen, you don't forget them. There's obviously the ones that predate us, like Marlon Brando refusing to accept his Oscar. The Native American woman accepts the Oscar and highlights that it's because of the negative depiction of Native Americans in films. And then John Wayne rushes the stage in a wild, bizarre moment. Then there's the more recent ones like Alan Carr when he produced the 1989 Oscars. You had the Rob Lowe and Snow White opening, which feel bad for, honestly, in retrospect, because I think there's a few things about the criticisms that didn't age well. But then more recently, you have Oscar So White. You had the Moonlight and La La Land mix-up. And I think the biggest one recently, of course, is Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. And I'm going to tee it up to you because you have an interesting theory about this one that I've been thinking about ever since. 
I was actually in LA that uh, night and I didn't go to the Oscars. Um, I just went to the beach with a, a buddy of mine and then we were back and we like dropped by his parents' place and, and his dad was watching the Oscars and it just wrapped up and he was like, oh, did you hear, you know, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock? I was like, come on, it's got to be a setup. Uh, and uh, then we watched it, of course, as we all learned, that was not how that went down. So the more I thought about it, I blame the slap on Suge Knight. A lot has been made of Will Smith and his relationship with his wife, Jada, and, you know, Jada's relationship with Tupac. They both were theater kids in Baltimore and they were really close and out there is that they were not uh, romantically involved. But, you know, if you read back through uh, sort of interviews and and uh, observations, just like over time, you know, Will Smith was clearly threatened, but he just, he felt uncomfortable around Tupac, I think, because Will was a squeaky clean rapper who didn't curse and Tupac was a sort of hero, bad boy. Um, but you know what I mean? He, you know, he was, uh, had totally different image, just like kind of rougher edged image. And, you know, Will maybe thought that he could never quite measure up or be cool in that way. The irony of all of this is that he was not at all this sort of thug life, whatever, uh, persona that that kind of was going on uh, at the end of his tragically short life. And that was really the creation of, of Suge Knight. And I remember when I was writing my book, Three Kings, uh, about the uh, Jay-Z, Diddy, Dr. Dre, and sort of the business of hip hop, and where Dr. Dre intersected with Tupac and Death Row and all that. Um, you know, I-, I talked to a lot of people who were around Suge and Pac at, at the time, and they said that it felt like Suge and Pac had become characters in their own bad gangster movie that they were just sort of making in real life. And I think Suge really kind of saw the opportunity and egged Pac on um, to the point where he adopted this image that was like really not at all who he was. And But anyway, because Suge really encouraged Tupac to, to adopt this persona, which wasn't even him, um, I think, you know, that persona was something that Will Smith was reacting to long after Tupac died and trying to like, you know, measure up to and prove that he was, you know, something or had a certain swagger and, you know, uh, uh, machismo or whatever it is. And, um, and I, and I think that, so the, the moment came, um, you know, it's like Chris Rock is saying something about Jada and some like part of his internal, whatever went off and he's like, this is my moment. I'm going to like do my tough guy thing. And he, and he goes up and he slaps Chris Rock in the face, which obviously is like a completely ridiculous thing to do. I don't know. I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall, like, or, you know, over the therapy couch when, when you know, Will goes in. I, I'm so curious if, you know, if that at all played into it, if he ever, you know, thought about that. Because uh, I think, it, I really do think it does. And I love Will Smith. I love Tupac. I just want to blame the whole thing on Suge Knight and call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't be the first person to be blamed for some wrongdoing in a lot of people's lives. So I don't think you're wrong there. And I know we could talk about that one for a while, but we should talk about snubs here because I think that's probably an interesting place for us to dive into. And it's always a show, no different than anything. It's subjective. People are always going to have their different opinions. But if you could pick one snub that has happened in the Oscars that you look back on and you're just like, man, if I had a magic wand, I could redo this one. What would be your mulligan? What would be the one that you'd pick? Oh, if there's one, I'm going Susan Sarandon for Lorenzo's Oil. That's easy. Because <laughs> then because then I can say that I, I started an Oscar-winning film. And now I can only say that that I started, I played the title role. I didn't really, like Susan Sarandon and Nick Nolte start. I don't know. I still wouldn't have been there. So that might have been even worse for me. But um, 
there were a lot of good nominees that year. I think she did a fantastic job. I'm kind of biased, but I, I will I will shout out also um, uh, Chad, Chadwick Boseman the year that that um, Anthony Hopkins won and um, Leo and Titanic. Uh, but I think that same year, uh, Matt Damon got snubbed for Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, it. Matt Damon probably um, yeah, should so, have won. It was Jack Nicholson won in as good as it gets, which was fine. I, the idea that Leo wasn't even nominated for that movie. I mean, you know, that movie is not that movie without Leo. Like there's no like there's no way it's the the greatest, you know, commercial success of all. It really is. I mean, if you add inflation and you also factor that it, uh, basically the Chinese market had not opened up at all yet. Um, to some some of these numbers that Avatar and movies like that are generating, I mean, it's not really apples to apples. Um, I think he got docked because I don't know. I think because he he's like like so attractive, people were like, "Oh, he's not a real actor," you know, it, it, in the, at that moment in time. And then and then like when he got older and more grizzled, they're like, "Oh, okay, you're a real actor now. We're going to give you the Oscar." That's exactly what it was. Even though the kid could clearly act, I mean, I'm calling him a kid. He was like 24 years old at the time, but he was yeah. Made- he looked like he was yeah. 17. But you know? he was Oscar nominated in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And he was fantastic in that. Granted, an able person that was playing a disabled person, you know, was that whole trope. But still, it really wasn't until the year that he was in both Catch Me and You Can of Gangs in New York. That was him playing this fag- flag to be like, okay, I'm in movies with Steven Spielberg. I'm in movies with Martin Scorsese. Take me seriously. I'm a grown man. I'm no longer, you know, heartthrob on teen beat or whatever i'm gonna grow a beard i'm gonna crawl into the like this buffalo carcass like give me the oscar finally and i'm glad he got it i mean i think he's very compelling also playing anti-heroes but i always thought like what if they had gotten him to play anakin skywalker uh in the star in the star wars prequel trilogy i could see it. he may have been a little old but i could have seen it mine are so if i had to pick i think the biggest one i'll say is do the right thing wasn't even nominated for Best Picture from the 1989 movies and the 1990 Oscar. It was Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams, Driving Miss Daisy, Born on the Fourth of July, and My Left Foot. I've seen all those movies, some good ones, but get Kevin Costner in the baseball field in the middle of the cornfields out of here and put Do the Right Thing in that spot. <laughs> Dang, I mean, a lot of those movies are not even really watched anymore, so... And just take Driving Miss Daisy out of that spot, too. Honestly, of all of the ones that were nominated, the one that actually won is probably the worst one and the one that has aged the worst by far. Well, I guess to close things out, what's one thing that you would do if you could improve the show? You know, we talked earlier about creating a pre-telecast to to create a bigger tent. But, you know, now that I think about it, I would divide best picture into two categories, best movie and best film. Right. So you can have your your best film and that's like your Hollywood retrospective period piece, whatever your insider thing and best movie. You could call it best blockbuster, whatever you want. That's, you know, to honor your avatars of the world to get more people in. And and then you could even keep best picture and you could just have it be which is the two best of the of the two of them. And it would probably always be, um, you know, the best film would also get best picture. Uh, but then it starts to get very confusing. I don't know. I, I just I think like best blockbuster or best film something like that um just so that you're you know you you have a clear idea of what you're fighting for at the top of the awards i mean hey grammy says best record and best song i mean i know it's a different thing but so is a blockbuster versus an art film do you remember when they tried this a couple years ago they tried to introduce the popular oscar there was some type of word but best, best popular film or something like that people revolted and they removed it 
Okay, never mind. Then that's a terrible idea. I forget I said. <laughs> but I hear what you're saying, though. But it, there's always been this bit of tension, especially after Dark Knight wasn't nominated in 2008, and it should have been. But instead of looking to see, okay, how do we make sure that we can honor that as one of the five best films, they increase the categories. And of course, increasing the categories helps them make more money. The more films that can say they were Oscar nominated can make more money. But still, if you don't have that, then you also now kind of have this world where movies like Top Gun, Maverick, and Barbie get nominated, or even Black Panther get nominated, even though deep down, we know they're not going to win Best Picture. So it kind of becomes this thing where the movies that get nominated for Best Director are kind of the top five, if you think about it that way. It doesn't always play out that way. And and, and if you keep Best Picture also, so it's not like you're really booting them out of contention, and maybe you put Best Movie and Best Film in the pre-show, and then you put Best Picture overall in the in the major, I don't know. This is getting this is getting too complicated, probably. But uh, this is why they uh, they they didn't hire me to run the, the, uh, the Oscars or or, or even uh, uh, have me show up at the ceremony. Mine would be the same thing that I said in our Grammy episode for the magic wand change that I would say, which is tell us the votes, tell us how close it was in any other awarding type of thing that is subjective. Whether it's NFL, MVP, NBA, MVP, Baseball Hall of Fame, we're able to see the votes. It gives us an idea, okay, was this a unanimous runaway thing or was this a very close race? And we can sometimes get a sense for this when there's movies like uh, Silence of the Lambs or Return of the King or everything everywhere all at once that kind of sweeps the Oscars. But we don't always necessarily have that. So that would be the change I would make. I like that. I like yours better than mine. Let's, let's go with that. <laughs> well, Zach, to, to close things out, officially, though, we should probably just name one winner. So if there's one winner that you had to pick that you think has benefited most from the Oscars, who would it be? Man, you know, I, I'm thinking like maybe Meryl Streep. She's sort of Oscars are her brand. Um, you know, La La Land, which is fine, but has like the most nominations ever. But I don't know, probably Walt Disney. Walt Disney was like the most awarded, uh, I think, individual of all time. Uh, maybe the most nominated to. If you go through the list of Oscar records, it's like all Walt Disney. So there's a certain prestige that comes. We've been talking the whole episode with an Oscar. And, you know, we see this now with the Apples and the Netflixes of the world, you know, spending all this money to campaign for Oscars and, and you know, producing great stuff and winning Oscars and, and now being taken totally seriously. I wonder if Disney would have become Disney if Walt Disney hadn't won all the, the Oscars that, that, that he won um, and, and if that kind of contributed to this eternal brand that, that Disney has. So what I'm going to go with is CAA and specifically just thinking about how Michael Ovitz was really able to essentially be a bit of the puppet master and just move things along specifically as it related to people winning Oscars and how that helped CAA's brand continue, whether it was his relationship with Scorsese. He had that pivotal thing of switching Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, one of them producing Schindler's List, the other one producing Cape Fear and how it was the right move to switch both of those, or uh, Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise and Rain Man and helping to package that movie together and that movie winning Best Picture. And how this agency, even though it didn't own any IP necessarily was still able to get an agent cut off of all of these movies that just went on to make a ton of money. I think that agency was really able to help plant its flag and change Hollywood in general in all of the different ways. And I think there is a through line in terms of how this whole industry has evolved, especially since the late 70s, and how a lot of that stems back to CAA 
in its rise in Hollywood. I mean, yeah, if you're getting a double digit cut on two stars and the supporting, you're packaging everybody together and the producer and the director and everything. I mean, you might be taking home. Yeah, I mean, it all adds up maybe to, to more than uh, to more than some of the filmmakers make. So that's a, that's a really that's a really good angle on that. I like that. And on that note, to close things out, I know you didn't get to go to the Oscars in 1992 or 1993. I forget the exact year. But do you think you'll get to go to the Vanity Fair party at some point? You know, I, I don't know. I, there's the Vanity Fair party and then Jay-Z and Beyonce have their party. Uh, you know, that, that, that one, my invitation must've been lost in the mail. I don't know. So, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe the vanity fair down the line. I mean, who knows? Maybe Riley has a career in film. I actually, I know I, I've thought about Riley. My daughter is almost two and it's just like, you know, I don't know. You hear all these things about child stars and I think she's got what it takes, man, but I, I wouldn't want to put her through that. So I think I'll, I'll just be fine not going to the Oscars. That's okay. <laughs> well, kind of like the Grammys things we talked about, right? If one, if one of our kids makes it out, then be like, okay, I'll go with you. And then, yeah. you know, we can have, have a seat alongside, even if the kid's in some behind the scenes role where they're not in the, the face of the movie. Well, Zach, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. As always, Dan, uh, great to be on with you. Have a good one. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rate the podcast on Spotify. Rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.